and keep your Bibles open to Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26. That is the passage that we will be primarily looking at today as we continue in our series entitled Wonderful Counselor. We are now in the New Testament uh, dealing with the 16 counseling sessions conducted by God Himself with individuals who have problems. Today we come to Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. So let's bow in prayer. Father, we ask that Your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, might illuminate them to us so that You would speak to our hearts and lives individually today. And just as Jesus dealt with this rich young ruler, may You deal with us. May You show us who You are and who we are and what we need to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm on my best behavior today because my boss is here. Tom Harris is here today. So if I seem a little nervous, it's, you know, it's because he's here. But it's great to have Tom with us representing uh, the interim pastor ministries and uh, overseeing uh, many churches and pastors across the country that are between pastors. And so it's a privilege to serve with that ministry. All three synoptic Gospels record this interview. And from them we learn that this man was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. A fine young man. Seems like uh, you would want to get to know him, and that most churches would be glad to have him. And he came to Jesus with a question. It's a good question. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life. We think of the plot of many westerns and many movies in which a pretty bad guy does like one really big thing. And it's so good that it just changes his life and, and the lives of all those around him. We think of that kind of a plot. Uh, because the Jewish rabbis had that kind of concept that even though you may not be a very good person, if there was one, if you could do like really one really good thing in your life, maybe that would be good enough to get you into heaven. And there are many people from many religions who feel like that. Strangely enough, there are some people who think that by blowing themselves up, they'll get to heaven. Uh, so we think about this. What is the what is that good thing that I could do that would get me eternal life? And there's a lot of people asking that question today. What is that one good thing that I could do, or many good things? And they think, well, if I could uh, give money to the poor, if I could help people, uh, if I could do good deeds, if I could minister to others, maybe that would be good enough. Now, the interesting thing is that this young man apparently thought that he pretty much was a good person, and he didn't think that he couldn't think of anything else he could really do. He, 
He'd been so good, he couldn't think of anything else, but he thought maybe there was something. So he asks Jesus. Seems like many people I meet are like that. They, they feel pretty good about themselves. They know they're above average. You know, they know that. And uh, they figure that they're probably better than most people they know. And so they think that if God grades on the curve, and if, if uh, life up there is like life down here, they're certainly going to make it. Most Americans seem convinced that they are good enough to go to heaven. And this man had assumed that about himself. By the way, they're some of the hardest people to reach with the gospel. And yet Jesus reached out to this rich young ruler in a very unique and interesting way. Maybe you have some relatives and friends and co-workers like that. They're just really good people. In fact, you're pretty well convinced they're probably better than you are. And you think, what can I ever say to them? They have their life together. They have good health, good jobs. They're religious. They seem moral and decent, law-abiding people. What do I have to say to them? Well, Jesus sets the pattern for us. I was selling Bibles in 1969 in Lumberton. I think some of you know where Lumberton is. I know, I know a couple of you are from there. Uh, I was selling Bibles door-to-door in Lumberton in 1969, and I, I came upon a wonderful family, and uh, they were just wonderful people. They were so nice to me. And uh, they said, come on over for supper. And boy, she was a good cook. And uh, apple pie, oh, it was good, you know? And uh, I was kind of eating tuna fish in my trailer that summer. And so it was really nice to have a home-cooked meal. And after supper, we were talking about the Bible. And she said, you know, I haven't sinned in 10 years. <laughs> I mean, she was, she was serious. She was pretty pretty happy about that. And I said, so maybe you need to define for me what you mean by sin. And she said this. She says, I believe sin is intentionally breaking one of the Ten Commandments. I was willing to give her that. She was a pretty good person. You know, I thought, maybe, maybe. It's interesting how people define Sin. Some people you meet, they say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've never been arrested, or I've never been incarcerated, or I've never, you know, been on the front page of the paper for something bad that I did. Well, however you rate that, most people seem to be able to live with themselves. Most people have a pretty positive view of self. And this young man certainly did. How would you counsel him? How would you answer his question if he said, Uh, To you, what good thing must I do to inherit everlasting life? See, naturally, I'm trained in evangelism explosion. I would have gone into the gospel with him. Maybe you would have used the Romans road or the good news, bad news method or the four laws or whatever gospel method you would present. I think I would have presented the gospel to him. But that's not what Jesus did. It's fascinating. What did Jesus say in answer to that question? 
Well, first, Jesus asked him a why question. And we've seen that the wonderful counselor asks a lot of questions. And God never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. He knows all the answers. He asks questions so that people will think. And here's his why question. Why are you asking me about what is good? You see, Jesus is a careful listener. He listened to what this rich young ruler was asking, and he took something from his question and said, you need to think more deeply about that little word, good. (laughs) We use it so easily, don't we? Yeah, good. That was good. That was good. Yeah. And, uh, and, And then we're done eating. Somebody wants to give us more food. We say, no, I'm good. We use the word good so casually. And and yet Jesus says, you need to think about that word good. And then he makes a startling statement to the rich young ruler. There is only one who is good. Ooh, that narrows it down, doesn't it? He said, you need to think about the word good and you need to know something. And that is this. There is only one who is good. Only one. Only God is good. Do you know that God defines what is good? How many of you are reading through the Bible this year? I'm still checking on you. Some of you dropped out, but you're still saying, okay, good. A lot of you are staying with it. You know, you're going to discover some things about God that you never knew before. And you're going to have a crisis of faith. Because you're going to think, I don't know. I don't think God did that good, you know. I don't think that. I don't know. Why was he doing that? Yeah. Do you know that God defines good? If you want to know what good is, learn about God. Learn who he is and what he has done, because by definition, everything that God is and everything that God does is good. And if you don't think he's good, then you need to adjust your concept of good. In fact, every time you read the Bible, you better be willing to make some adjustments to your thinking and to your life. You know what that's called? It's called repentance. Repentance. To think again. To think more deeply. To think differently. Every time we encounter the God of the Bible in the Bible, we should adjust our thinking to Him and say, okay, Lord, I'm wrong, you're right. You know what most of the world is doing with God? I'm right, you're wrong. God is on trial by most people. I don't like what God did with that. Why did God do that? God defines what is right, what is good. Only God is good. He defines it. And then Jesus was paying attention. He answers this young man's question. Here's his answer. But if you wish to enter into life... Keep the commandments. Really? So, you could get saved by keeping God's commandments? By obeying God's law, you could be saved? Yes. If a person could thoroughly, fully, Keep God's law. See, there's nothing wrong with God's law. 
We live in a world that is so rebellious that some people think that rules are evil and that doing what your heart desires, it is what is good. That's not the Bible. The Bible says the law of the Lord is right. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law is right and good. There's nothing wrong with God's law. The problem is with us. We can't keep it. Theoretically, if a person could keep the whole law in heart and mind and motive in every way, then we could save ourselves. The only trouble is that nobody's ever done that and nobody ever will except Jesus. He is the only one who kept the law of God in every sense. He is the one who is the fulfillment of God's law. God intended that his law would convince people of their sinfulness and drive them to the sacrifices. The Mosaic law not only set up the moral standards that are absolute and unchangeable, but they provided a way for guilty sinners to have blood atonement. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The law of God was intended to drive us to the sacrifice and then ultimately to drive us to the Lamb of God, Jesus, who paid for the sins of the world with His blood on the cross for us. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't use the four laws? Do you know what I'm talking about? Why Jesus didn't use the EE method? Why Jesus didn't use the Romans road? Why Jesus spoke differently to every person that He ever dealt with? I mean, the Gospel of John. He's dealing with Nicodemus. He's dealing with the children. He's dealing with the woman at the well. He's dealing with the rich young ruler. He's dealing with the woman caught in the act of adultery. And he says different things to all of them. So what are we supposed to learn from that? Well, we need the Holy Spirit's guidance to talk to every person that we talk to. Now, the Gospel is the same. The gospel defined by the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, is that Christ died for our sins according to the the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. But how you deal with a lost person requires the guidance of the Holy Spirit in that conversation. Man, my name is Ray Comfort. Help me to understand Jesus dealing. He says, if you look at the way Jesus dealt with different people and you want to have a simple way of looking at it, he says, it was law to the proud and grace to the humble. And a light bulb went on with me and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. So here's the woman caught in the act of adultery. She knows she's a sinner. She feels awful. She can't forgive herself. She feels guilty and terrible and rejected and ashamed and awful. And what does Jesus do to her? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And some people say, he was way too easy on her. On the other hand, with the Pharisees, he says, you whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You hypocrites. You look good on the outside, but inside you've got creepy crawly things going on in your life. 
Woo! Jesus was rough on the Pharisees. He gave them the heart of the law. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. He says, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if a man looks at a woman with lust, he has committed adultery already in his heart. If he hates his brother, he has committed murder. In the Sermon on the Mount, he goes beneath merely outward behavior to inward motives and heart. And he says the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. Why? Because the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Paul says in Romans 3, the law was given that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. How many of you ever had an x-ray? How many of you ever were healed by an x-ray? No, x-rays don't heal, do they? But x-rays and MRIs and all those machines that you, uh, you know, pay so much for at the hospital and doctor's office are there to diagnose your condition. Amen? They, 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 and, and, and you say, whoa, let me see those x-rays. Whoa, that bone really is broken. I guess I'm going to need surgery. Yeah, okay. And the x-ray is what shows us. The, the Word of God, the law of God is God's mirror, God's x-ray. And the law of God shows us our sinfulness and our need so that we will go to Dr. Jesus for the cure. Remember what Jesus said? They said, what are you hanging around with sinners so much, Jesus? <laughs> he says, well, a doctor spends a lot of time with sick people. That's why. Yeah. Those that are whole need not a physician. No, he came. He came to show people their need. Hey, by the way, when will you for sure go to the dentist? When it hurts. Amen? And when it keeps on hurting. And when it gets worse. Then you will go. Now, some of you are very go. You go your six-month checkup. and you have, you know, Real good. That's good. But I'll tell you, there's a time when everybody... This one lady, she never went out of the house. She never went out of the house. But I saw her at the dentist's office, you know? Yeah, she went to the dentist. Pain will drive you. When you are convinced you've got a problem, you will go for surgery as difficult and painful as that may be. You will go to the doctor when you know you have your need. I had an evangelist friend of mine, he'd come back from a campaign. Somebody would say to him, hey, uh, Bob Manderson, how many, how many souls did you save this time? And he, his answer always would be, my job isn't to get them saved. He said, my job is to get them lost. Only God can save them. Yeah, he was convinced that most people aren't ready to be saved because they don't know they're lost. They don't know that they can't save themselves. They don't know how hopeless their condition is. They don't know that they can't save themselves. Most people are working very hard on saving themselves. That's why people go to church and give money and do all kinds of nice things is they're trying to earn their salvation, but it cannot be earned or deserved. It is only by grace that we are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
So who was the law made for? The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1, the law was not made for a righteous man, but it was made for sinners. Why? To show them that they are lost. James 2.10 says, if you were to keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you are guilty of all. Why? Because the law is a chain. If we would say the Ten Commandments, a link, a chain with ten links, and you say, I've kept nine of them. Well, maybe you have, but if you have broken one link in that chain, you're gone. All of us stand guilty before God. And that is why the preaching of the law is so important. And it is so why many churches and people who claim to be Christians do not want to hear the law of God, but we will never appreciate the grace of God until we have heard the message of God's x-ray machine, the law of God. He says here, if you would be perfect or if you would be complete. Verse 21. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. It's in the word teleos, complete. Jesus used that in his conclusion. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. The conclusion of what he is saying about the law as part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and verse 48, just back a few pages. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Some people say, well, the word perfect just means complete. It just means having your life together. No, he's defining that which is required by God. If you're going to get to heaven by law keeping, you've got to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, maybe your mother thought you were perfect, you know. My mother thought I was perfect. Really, she did. My mother had way too high of an opinion of me. But you know what? Uh, None of us are. We all fall short. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it is the law of God that God uses to point that out. Jesus told him to keep the commandments. His reply was very clever. Which ones? Mark Twain was a famous skeptic, although he had a wife and daughters who were believers in Christ. One day, his wife noticed that Mark Twain uh, was, uh, Samuel Clemens, was, was studying the Bible very intently, and she was very encouraged. She'd been praying for him for a long time. She said, What are you doing? He said, I'm looking for loopholes. (laughs) I think this rich young ruler was looking for a loophole. Hey, do you think that lawyers and tax people are looking for loopholes in the new tax law? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Intentional or otherwise, they will find some loopholes. And that's how some people study the Bible. For instance, today we find people that are... uh, desiring to live a homosexual lifestyle. And so they're reinterpreting the Bible, that the Bible really blesses same-sex unions. 
Boy, read some of their twisted exegesis or eisegesis of Scripture. It's really strange. They say with numbers, if you torture them enough, you can make them say anything. And I'll tell you, there's some people that are so smart, they have so many degrees and so much learning that they can make the Bible say exactly the opposite of what it says. Don't follow them. The Bible is plain. The Bible is clear. And the Bible, by means of the Holy Spirit, can be understood by the Christian. Don't look for loopholes. Take it for what it says. Proud people need the law. Humble people need grace. So what did Jesus say to him? He said, here's the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, I'm good. All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? If you ever are dealing with a person who is convinced that they are good enough to go to heaven by their own good works, bring out God's x-ray machine. Go to Exodus chapter 20 and go down through the list. Is God truly first in your life? How are you doing with these things? And go down, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever had an adulterous thought? Have you, you just go down through the law and you will find, you ever take something that wasn't yours? Have you always honored your father and your mother? Do you truly love your neighbor as yourself? You say, well, how can I don't even know who they are? Well, you got work to do. You know. You're not even loving your neighbor as a neighbor, letting, let alone love your neighbor as yourself? Wow. When you think deeply about these things, you realize that all of us have come short. But this young man thought, no, I've kept these things. Anything else? And Jesus points him to the 10th commandment. Turn there with me, if you would, please, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And take a look with me at the 10th commandment. Verse 17, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet. It means to desire something that is someone else's or some, something that... God does not have in His will for you. You ever watch children in the nursery play? What toy does a child want? Yeah, the one the other kid has, right? There's a thousand toys sitting there. Now he wants that one because Johnny's got it. I want that one. It starts in the nursery, doesn't it? And it continues on through life. We want what the other person has. And now we can know what the other person has because we have Facebook. (laughs) We can know what they're eating. We can know where they are vacationing. We can know how beautiful their family is. We can know what they are experiencing and enjoy. Hey, before television, people didn't know what other people had. All of a sudden with TV, some of you are old enough to remember, you know, all of a sudden... I grew up thinking that we were okay. I didn't know how poor we are until I watched television, you know? 
And now you don't know how poor you are and what you're missing unless you're on social media and all of a sudden everybody is having fun but you. Everybody's having a good time. Everybody has good relationships and they're all in love except you, you know? And you you wonder about this. He says, covetousness is a sin. You know, the Apostle Paul said that was the commandment that slew him. He says, that was the, I was doing pretty good in keeping God's law. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But when I got to that command, thou shalt not covet. And the Bible says that covetousness is idolatry and that no covetous man has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Do you know that covetousness will keep you out of heaven? It's a sin of the heart, a subtle sin. We have all committed it. It is enough to condemn the best of us. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. Jesus puts his finger on the problem in this fine young man's life. He says, you've got a covetous heart, and here's what you're going to have to do to get the cure. You're going to have to sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And he went away very sorrowful because he had many possessions. And then Jesus uses this as a teachable moment with his disciples. He turns to his disciples and he says to them, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard is it? It's as hard as it would be for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, my wife is a wonderful seamstress, and she's making me a quilt for my birthday made out of my old motorcycle T-shirts. I'm so excited. (laughs) But I cannot even put a thread through the eye of a needle. You ever try to do that? I can't even see it. Putting a camel through there is impossible. Do you realize that It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You say, well, I'm glad I'm not rich. If you live in America and you have a job, you are rich. Sorry, you are. If you don't think you're rich, you haven't been to other places. If you have been to a third world country, you know that you have been rich all your life. Do you realize that what Jesus is saying, that for the average American to get into heaven, it is impossible with man. Forget about it. Don't try to put camels through the eyes of needles. By trying to be good enough in your own, you'll never make it. Well, what hope is there for self-righteous, rich people like us? Who then can be saved, the disciples say, in hopeless concern? I love verse 26. There's my hope. With men, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I was researching the Peter's family motto. It's in Latin. Translated into English, it is simply this. Without God, nothing. My own version is, even with God, not that much. But without God, nothing. And that's true of you too, 
whether you're a Peters or not. Without God, nothing. We don't have a chance without God reaching down. Without God saving us. We cannot work our way up to be good enough to be acceptable by God. There isn't anything you can do. He must save you or you cannot be saved. Because salvation is a miracle performed by God. He makes dead people live. He makes blind people see. It is a miracle. Salvation is something that only God can do. And when you get to the place in your life where you say, I'm guilty. I can't save myself. I give up on my righteousness. I give up on my religiosity. I give up on my morality. I give up on my good works. God, if you don't save me, I'm not going to get saved. That's when you get saved. By the way, that's how you live the Christian life. As you've received Jesus Christ your Lord, so walk ye in Him. (laughs) How do you live the Christian life? You go through your life saying, you know, I can't do this. This thing, raising children. Hey, you ever try to raise children? (laughs) I remember one time I was, I like to walk around the church when nobody's there and pray. And I remember one time I was walking around the church and praying and I said, God, you put me into the ministry, but I'm having so much trouble with my kids. If you don't help me, I'm sunk. You got to help me with these kids. They're more than I can handle. And you know, he did. He has. I am so blessed. But I'll tell you what, I came to more than one time in the raising my children that I had to say, I can't do this. I can't do this. God, you're going to have to work in their lives. I can't do it. That's the crisis of faith. And when you come to that in your life and you yield to God, He will save you. He will sanctify you. He will use you. You say, here's this opportunity for ministry, but I can't do that. I can't speak in public. I can't lead anything. I can't do this. And when you say, I can't, and Lord, I'm willing, but I can't do this. Would you do this through me and in me? And then He does. And then He gets the glory. Amen? He gets the glory. Let's bow in prayer. Has God been speaking to you today? Have you been trying to be good enough? Have you been trying to play by the rules, do the right thing, be good enough? Always wondering whether you were good enough. But today, you're willing to say to God, all right, I know I'll never be good enough. I know I can't save myself. I know I'm a guilty sinner. And I want God to save me. If you're ready for that, would you pray a prayer to receive Christ right where you are? Pray something like this. Say, dear God, I know I'm a guilty sinner and I can't save myself. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and rose again. Jesus, I receive you into my life as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life. Father, I pray for those who prayed with me today to receive Christ. I thank you that you are in their lives. You will never leave them nor forsake them. 
and you will always be with them. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come here today to worship you and our hearts are filled with joy that we can gather as a congregation to, uh, to lift up the prayers to you, to lift up these beautiful singing voices of the choir, to lift up all that would need uh, help, Lord, these sicknesses and ailments going on today. And Father, everybody in here needs help and we just need your presence in our lives. Father, we pray today for the Caribbean Christian Center of the Deaf. Bless them and continue to bless them there in Jamaica for all they're doing for the hearing impaired. And Father, help us, Lord, to support that ministry. Father, be with us and guide us. May there be peace in Jerusalem. And we love you and thank you for all you do in our lives. May you have all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.